The following audio is from Heritage Christian you know, Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian no Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. That creates tension and complexity like human relationships. The fact is, in, in life, more than any other thing that you will deal with, you will deal with one topic repeatedly over and over until the day you die. There's one thing that you'll encounter more than anything else. What is that? It's sin. Now, sometimes it's our own sin, and sometimes it's the sins of others. But sin will be something that we wrestle with in one form or another throughout the entirety of our lives. Uh, Paul Tripp has a, a really great quote about this. He says, we are all just sinners reacting sinfully to sins against us. Think about that. We are all just sinners reacting sinfully to sins against us. Now, whether we're talking about the kinds of generational sins like abuse and anger and neglect or, 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 or whether that's some other reactive form of sin, most of the time we can track our sin back to some sin that we encountered somewhere else. Now, some of, some of it's inborn, but a lot of times a sin against us causes a wound that causes us to then sin in response. Much of what goes wrong in mankind is the result of an inability to move past hurt or to move past an injustice. And people carry that burden around. Now, most of you guys know, if, you, if you've been around a whole lot, um, I, I love to get out in the woods. It's just, for me, it's, it's like a form of therapy. First of all, when you get out of cell phone range, right, there's that glorious moment where you hold your phone up and the little lines that are there are all empty. And you realize, okay, I am now cleared of all responsibility. For this moment in time, all that I have to do is just be present right here, right now. Now, I love to go backpacking. Matter of fact, let me show you something. So this is my backpack. What's that? <laughs> I'm going to stay a while. I just went backpacking this last week, as a matter of fact. Now, when I go, I like to bring a few creature comforts. I like to have a chair when I'm sitting around the fire. There's just something about sitting on a rock or a log or, or something like that. that just After a few hours of that uncomfortability, your, your nice, beautiful view feels just a little bit uncomfortable. So I like to, to bring a little chair with me, and, and I, I really like to sleep in the woods, too. Uh, and I've found that sleeping on the ground doesn't work great for me. I'm, I'm kind of restless all throughout the night, even with the latest inflatable pads and whatever else. So I discovered hammock camping, and, and I absolutely love that. I sleep in the trees. I'm stretched out in a hammock. I've got a nice down sleeping bag over the top of me. And, and also when I'm in the woods... 
I, I like steak. <laughs> now, generally, the philosophy about backpacking is that you should go as light as you possibly can into the woods because your endurance will be there much, much longer. You'll have a much more enjoyable time. The problem is, is that steak is very heavy. And so are the potatoes. <laughs> but I do like them. Now, different people have different mentalities when it comes to backpacking. There's my style, which is I like to have a little bit of comfort. Other people like the suffering. And so their goal is to go into the woods as light as they possibly can. This is called ultralight backpacking. And ultralighters generally will have a backpack on that is around anywhere from 12 to 18 pounds. And that's for everything that they need to be able to stay out in the woods. I'm more in like the 45 to 50 range because I'm a creature of comfort. So this last week, I went backpacking with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and my son. They were all in the 18 to 25-pound range. And we climbed an immense mountain, and I, I think there was some sort of like man competition that was happening between my father-in-law and my brother-in-law, and they, they were like just pacing as hard as they could, you know, almost at a dead run down the trail. And I am there with my 50-pound pack. It's like, okay, all right, this is great. I'm having fun. Moving down the road, down the trail. You know, but here's the thing. I know that the suffering is only for a season. It's just for a bit. And even if I'm the last guy on the trail, or even if it takes me a little bit longer to get there, when I get to camp, I'm going to set up my chair. I'm going to pull out my stakes. And everybody's going to be looking at me like, wow, I'm glad you did that. Right? But here's the point. At some point, I take the pack off. You see, if I, if, if I lived like this, Day in and day out. What kind of craziness, what kind of insanity is that? That I would just walk around with 50 pounds of extra weight strapped to my back. Imagine trying to get in my car or sit at my desk. Imagine just trying to go to the grocery store, just walking around with all that, this weight. Now, the thing is, is you can carry that kind of weight. And if you carry it with you all the time and long enough, you know what will happen? You'll get used to it. In fact, you might not even know that it's there. But it's a weight. There comes that moment. You finally scramble over the last little bit of rock and you get to this beautiful, pristine lake sitting on the top of a mountain. You're sweaty and your legs are screaming at you and your shoulders are, are heavy and burdened. And then you come and you take the pack and you unbuckle it. You try to. And then you take it off. Now, here's the thing. You may have adjusted to the weight, 
But the moment you take it off, you go, oh, I feel like I could jump to the moon. My legs feel free. My shoulders feel free. That weight that I was carrying, I had no idea how it was hurting me, how it was wounding me, how it was holding me back. There comes a point for everybody where you have to lay the pack down because you can't live like that. Now, when it comes to the issue of sin and weight and wounds and hurt, I think most people know this, and they know this in varying degrees. There's a sort of reactivity to the hurts that we endure in life that continues to perpetuate problems in our lives. And this is where the discussion usually turns to the issue of forgiveness. And to that end, people have developed all kinds of philosophies about how to deal with the pain. These philosophies, or most of the time, their sort of instincts, are called coping mechanisms. They're simply just strategies that people employ to deal with the emotional responses that they have towards the hurts that they receive in life. And sometimes these, these hurts are self-inflicted. And sometimes they happen at the hands of others. So here's a few examples of how people will cope with the hurts of sin against themselves in life. Some people prefer to just sort of sweep it under the carpet. This approach is, is simply one where a person tries to ignore the injustices of the world around them. They just sort of pretend that it never happened. Oftentimes, this person be becomes the enabler. They never speak up. They always pretend that everything's okay. They just sort of stick their head in the sand and pretend like nothing is wrong. It didn't hurt. It didn't happen. Nothing is there. There's a second variety that's similar but different. These are the shove-it-down people. They take all that hurt, the sins against them, they take all of the sins that maybe even they have committed, and they just shove, they ball it up, and they shove it down deep, 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 deep inside of their subconscious, deep into their souls, deep into their hearts. And this person becomes a sort of sin eater, is often just craving connection and relationships, but because they can't express their feelings, they're limited in relationships. Why? Because when you ball up all of that frustration and you shove it deep down, to feel a little bit feels like you are opening the floodgates. You're taking the cap off. To identify with any measure of feeling means then that the rest of what you feel might come bubbling up. This person is repressive. All their feelings are trapped on the inside. They just shove it down, shove it down. There's a third strategy, and I, I like to call this one cocooning. This is the person who responds to hurt in their lives by insulating themselves against others that could possibly hurt them. So then this person becomes kind of emotionally distant. They become an isolationist. They, they also crave closeness with others, 
but because they feel like everybody might be out to get them or somebody could possibly hurt them again in some way, they insulate themselves against close personal relationships. They cocoon. They protect themselves from relationships. They can do it one of two ways. Some people on one side of the spectrum, they do it by withdrawing. They just step away from people. They step away from relationships. They prefer to be alone. They don't trust others easily. When they walk into a room, they're suspicious of everybody. The other group, though, rather than withdrawing, they just become hostile. And, and the hostility is a way to keep people from getting too close. Like, I don't want you to know me. I don't want to give you access to my heart. I don't want you to know how I tick. I want to keep you at arm's distance. And it's the same thing. It's a, it's a cocoon. It's a protective barrier that keeps you from making close personal connections. And then there's the forgive and forget strategy. Now, Others take what they believe is a good strategy because it sounds more spiritual. It's a more spiritual route. They, and they employ this sort of forgive and forget mentality. Now, this is especially true in religious circles. You'll, you, you'll, this is a phrase that you've probably heard if you've been around the church any measure of time. It, it makes a great spiritual soundbite. It's short enough of a phrase you can stick it on a bumper sticker. People like that sort of thing, and Christians in particular, like big truths boiled down to small statements. So you'll hear it from those around you. Oftentimes, you hear it from people who have good intentions. That is, like, you're, you're wrestling with a hurt. You're wrestling with some sort of offense. And sometimes you can fix that, and sometimes you can't. And, and, and somebody will come in, and with a good heart and with good intention, they just want to reduce your hurt in some way. And so they'll say something like, hey, you just need to forgive and forget. Just move on because you can't stay stuck like this. You can't stay hurting forever. I don't want to see you like that. Sometimes it comes from a good place. Other times, though, it comes from a place of spiritual manipulation. That is that people will come in and they'll say to you, hey, look, just forgive and forget. And what they really mean is, hey, don't hold me accountable don't call me out on my sin. Don't expect me to change. Don't lay the burden of surrendering my heart to Jesus in this. Just forgive it, forget it, and move on. They want to put you in a position of letting an offense go without a need for justice. But whether this phrase is meant for good or for harm, it's, it's just bad, bad, bad theology. And that is why this morning we are tackling the idea for our next session here in our Mythbusters teaching series. That forgiving means forgetting. Now we've been looking at different myths throughout our time together and, and considering the implications of those myths upon the daily life of believers. Simply stated, people believe that forgiving means you just sort of forget, like you, you, you don't remember in some way. Have you ever had that struggle? Where you're, you're, like you're trying to forgive somebody, but it kind of keeps coming up to your mind? And, and then, how do you respond? It's like, okay, just forget it. But the more you tell yourself to forget it, what are you doing? Remembering it. 
thinking about it, obsessing on it, contemplating it. How do I forget this thing? How do I, can I just get it erased from my, sometimes we, we, we wish that the, you know, that little device that they have on men in black, that somebody could just, right? And all, oh, that's right, you never offended me. But that's not reality, is it? So why do Christians in particular think that this, is, this myth is true? Where, where does that come from? Well, many people think that this idea comes from the Bible. And the reason is that, there's, is that there's a couple of Old Testament passages in the Bible where God talks about not remembering our sins. So one of those passages is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. It says this, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now this passage also gets quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and again in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, Verse 17, and the author of Hebrews is quoting it because it is found in an Old Testament prophetic passage that deals with this topic of the new covenant. Now, the new covenant is God's promise to us that is fulfilled in Jesus, in which he says he will remove our sins and make us a part of his family, make us a part of his kingdom forever. And in the minds of some, this is how God deals with our sins. He just sort of forgets them, or he, or he chooses not to remember them. He, he blots them out of his memory bank. And there's another Old Testament passage that seems to say the same thing. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. It says this, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so when you isolate those two individual scriptures... Those portions of Scripture from the original context, it seems to say that God also has employed a coping strategy for dealing with the hurts against him. Because it's not really clearly thought out, because it's not something that the people think about mechanically and really meditate on and chew on precisely, it becomes easy to say to ourselves or to others that God is using some sort of coping strategy to deal with our sin. It, that either A, he sweeps it under the carpet, he just pretends it doesn't happen, or, or, or B, he, he just sort of shoves it down, like he knows all those offenses are there, but he just buries it so deep that he no longer remembers it. He represses his feelings against our sin. Or that somehow he has insulated himself against our sin in some way. That he's, that he's somehow distant from the harm that we do to ourselves and to others. He cocoons. Or, and this is where the myth comes from, that God simply forgives and forgets. It's, it's like God sort of has this ability that we don't where he can choose to remember something or choose not to remember something. Now the problem is, is that the rest of the Bible makes statements that seem to contradict that idea. Take, for example, God's omniscience. If God 
chooses not to remember our sins, does that now mean that God is getting dumber over time? Does it mean now that, 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 that God, as humanity's sin increases, his knowledge is getting less? He's no longer omniscient because he said my sins would be remembered no more. Does that mean that he's just erasing knowledge about actual events that took place and taking it away so he now knows less than everything? And if that's true, that God's knowledge of everything is decreasing, the more people sin and the more that he forgives then that means that God is somehow becoming less omniscient, less intelligent. Another problem with this passage is that the context of them doesn't allow you to do that. When you look at the greater context of these two individual verses, you see in Jeremiah chapter 31 that, that the writer there, that Jeremiah, is, is actually recording the sins of Israel and saying God is now going to not remember them. He's going to forgive them. Same is true in the Isaiah 43 passage, where right before that passage is a long list of all the sins that Israel has committed. Now, it seems strange to just say that that God is in one passage listing off their sins only to tell them, by the way, in just a few moments, I'm going to forget everything I just told you. It doesn't work like that. Let me offer a, a more simple solution. God is not saying that he forgives and forgets. The language of the prophet is really a metaphor it's a word picture. It's designed to emphasize God's gracious determination and his resolve not to hold us liable for our sin. He has canceled our debt, and he will never demand payment. He sees our sins, he weighs their offense, and determines then to cancel that debt. He's honest with us about the offense, but he refuses to hold it against us. That's forgiveness. Now, how does he do that? How does, how does God do that? Very simply, he absorbs the debt himself. He forgives. So, if, if forgiveness does not mean forgetting, then what does it mean? What is it? What does it look like? This is where our passage, I think, in Matthew 18 becomes very helpful. Go ahead and open up Matthew 18. Hopefully you've still got your ribbon there or your cell phone or however it is that you mark that spot. Peter in verse 21 comes up to Jesus, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or seven, yeah, 77 times. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and, and for payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I, and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him, have, have patience with me and, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Whew. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel how heavy that passage is? This is not my idea. If I was going to talk about forgiveness, I'd say, yeah, forgive if you're able I want to cut people a break. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I've already cut you a break. Look at the mountain of debt that has been forgiven. So what does this passage teach us about forgiveness? There's four things I want you to take note of. First of all, the conundrum of forgiveness, verses 21 through 22. The cost of forgiveness, verses 23 to 27. The crisis of forgiveness, verses 28 to 34. And the call to forgiveness, verse 35. So in verses 21 to 22, the conundrum of forgiveness. Peter says, so how often should I really be willing to forgive? And then he offers up what he feels like is probably a generous number. Seven times? Now, we chuckle probably because we know the story already, right? But when, in real human-to-human -human interactions, don't you feel like that's a generous number? Like, what, what's the phrase, you know, like, fool me once, shame on me? Or, I forget how it goes. I always get that one mixed up. Shame. It's bad. You can't fool me two times. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we, we got like a two-time max. Right? 
Like you, you have somebody close to you and they, and they hurt you, they wound you really bad, and you're like, okay, it was an honest mistake, I forgive you. And then they come back and they wound you in the same way, you're like, okay, now I'm creating distance. And then they wound you again, 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 and then they wound you again. That's seven times, right? It's a generous number, don't you think? Peter probably felt that he was being magnanimous. Then Jesus comes back and says, no, 77 times. <laughs> Can you imagine what Peter must have been thinking? 77 times! Like, who can do that? That's impossible! And, and, and he knows, doesn't he? he? He knows that Jesus is not just saying, keep counting until you reach 77. No, what, what he's really saying is that, Peter, you're going to lose track at some point of how many times you've actually forgiven. You're just going to keep forgiving and forgiving. You're, you're not counting. You're just going to keep going and going. You're going to keep forgiving. Doesn't that seem excessive? What about justice? What about right being right? What about standing up for myself? I can't just be a doormat in life. How does this work? And there is the conundrum of forgiveness. God calls us to do something that is supernatural. It is not natural to us as humans. It is supernatural. Verses 23 to 27, the cost of forgiveness. You see, here's the issue. In, in, in the first part of the story where the servant is being called to account by his master and being called to pay this huge debt that there's no possible way he's going to be able to pay. In order for the master to forgive him, what happens to the debt? It doesn't just go away, does it? Someone has to absorb the loss. Someone has to pay. The debt does not just disappear. There's a cost. And forgiveness is costly. There's the cost to the offender. The one who offends. The cost is relational. It's a matter of trust that has been broken. It's restitutional. There's a consequence for sin, even if there is forgiveness. There's a cost to the offended because they've been hurt. You took advantage of me. Trust has been broken. You, you may hurt me again, and I don't, I don't know if you're a safe person or if you're going to keep taking advantage of me. And in Jesus' parable, the master is willing to bear the cost of the offense at great sacrifice to himself. Quick question. Guess who the master is in the story? Who do you think? It's God. He's the one 
who at great cost to himself bears the consequence, absorbs the debt, takes that on himself. See, the forgiveness does not simply mean you ignore an offense or that the offense just goes away or that the debt is somehow gone. No, forgiveness means someone has to absorb the wrong. And in this case, the master does it. Someone has to absorb it. Let me ask you a question. What happens if we don't? We say, okay, well, God did that. He absorbed the cost, and it caused him some suffering. We know that that was immeasurable and was, was bad, but God is big, and he's strong, and he's mighty, and he's stronger than I am, so he can do that, but I can't do that. I can't let go of what happened in my childhood. I can't let go of how my boss had hurt me. I can't let go of what happened in my family or with that friend. I, I can't let go of those things. I am not strong enough. I'm not capable. What happens if we don't forgive? Listen, unforgiveness locks us in. It locks us in. What does it cost if we don't forgive? Unforgiveness locks us in. We become the prisoner of our own need to make someone else pay. There's that old phrase. It's like swallowing poison and waiting for someone else to die. It isolates us against connecting with others because, because we, are, we are the walking wounded. We, we, we begin to walk around with the pack on our shoulders and, and we just keep adding more weight in life. Every time somebody offends us, we just stick another brick in our backpack and we just carry it around and carry it around and we are the one who gets locked in. Unforgiveness breaks us down. When we're unforgiving, the studies, the science is irrefutable. Our emotional health suffers. We wrestle with things like depression. We wrestle with bitterness, resentment. We end up with things like control issues because we don't want to get hurt again. And so we control other relationships to keep ourselves from being wounded ever again. Our physical health suffers. We, we have problems with heart disease, autoimmune disorders, adrenal fatigue. All kinds of things begin to break down in our body chemistry when we are under a constant weight of stress, of unforgiveness. Our emotional health suffers, our physical health suffers, and our spiritual health suffers. We are ultimately rebelling against God. And, and, and then what has to happen as a result of that is we have to compartmentalize our lives, right? We have to say, here in the sanctuary, God, I love you, you're amazing, I worship you. And he's like, yeah, but what about this? And you're like, no, just let, let me sweep that off to the side. You have to compartmentalize your life. God, you have access to me in the sanctuary and my lips and praise, but you don't have access to my heart. You don't get to tell me what to do there. You're not the king there. I know what you've commanded. I know what you've told me. It doesn't matter. I rule here. I'm on the throne here. And our spiritual health suffers as well. So unforgiveness, it locks us in. It breaks us down. And it narrows our vision. 
It narrows our vision. We become so locked in on making someone else pay that we deny the grace that God has given us. And we refuse to see that God's goal is for us all to be gathered together together in heaven, having been forgiven. That, That at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, that nobody stands taller than another, that we are all under the same grace of God, and we're going to be before the throne of God, the righteous judge of all the earth, and all debts will have been canceled. And we can't be in that place celebrating with honesty, looking at our brother or our sister or someone else and saying, God, I'm I just wish you wouldn't have forgiven him or her. You see, it narrows our vision. It causes us to focus on the hurt, to focus on the failure. And that brings us to the crisis then of forgiveness. The servant who's forgiven a mountain load of debt finds another servant who owes him just a few bucks grabs him by the neck, chokes him out, throws him in jail. And when the master calls him up, the master says, you wicked servant. I forgave you this mountain of debt. Shouldn't you have forgiven him a few bucks? The question at the center, how can the servant who has been forgiven so great a debt possibly not forgive the smaller debt? No. No. Quick question. Who's the servant that's been forgiven the debt? We know who the master is. Who's the servant? It's us. It's us. We are the servant. We're the servant that has been forgiven so much. How can we withhold forgiveness from others. We have to forgive. And this is the crisis, right? That brings us to this point. It's like, okay, but isn't that going to make me a doormat? Doesn't that open me up to being wounded again? Doesn't that make me a person who's an easy target to be used by others? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to forgive? Well, I can think of at least three reasons. First of all, it is a wound, right? An offense is a hurt. It's sometimes to our body, sometimes to our souls, sometimes to our spirit. And, and, and really, God has hardwired us for survival, right? To avoid things that hurt us, to avoid things that wound us. And he, he, he's hardwired us to, to be able to avoid pain and pursue health and pleasure and wholeness. But when it comes to Emotional hurts, a lot of times, the need to self-protect causes us to live with a sort of paranoia towards everything or anything that could be a similar type of hurt or offense. And this paranoia that is in us makes us hyper-attuned to anything that makes us feel the same or affects us in the same way. It causes a reflex of, of control in our lives where we're just trying to keep from getting wounded again. And so we back up and we distance ourselves and we keep moving away from the kind of healthiness and wholeness that God has called us to. 
It's a real wound. And we're really running from the pain. Not only is it a wound, but it's an evil. We can sense its author. It's contrary to how God made us. Our hearts rebel against the pain that is caused by other people. It's, it's an evil. It's an injustice. You see, there's something in us that longs for rightness, for things to be made right. And so we, we're fighting this battle where we feel hurt and we feel wounded and we, and, and we know that there's an evil push behind it. Somebody is intending something nefarious towards us. And there's this, de- this, this issue of, of, of justice. Like, if I just let this go, then is it right? Has the thing really been made right? And we're, we're programmed. We... we we, we long for justice to happen in the case of others. We want mercy for us. We want justice for others. Why is it so hard? Because it's a wound, it's an evil, it's an injustice. And yet, when the crisis all boils down, we simply come to this end, the end of this passage, and let's read this Again, because we, got, we have to absorb not just our opinions, not just what society tells us. We have to absorb what Jesus says right here. You ready? Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Guys, this is a command. The command of forgiveness. Jesus commands forgiveness from the heart. Now, when my kids were little, sometimes they would do something wrong to one another, right? And I'd be like, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Tell them you're forgiven. I forgive you. Right? Is that from the heart? No, you can say things with your mouth that your heart's disconnected from. That's one of the main problems in worship, right? Jesus said, he doesn't let us out with that. Not just an outward show of forgiveness. He said, from the heart, I want you to let this go. I want you to cancel that debt. I want you to forgive. From the heart. Guys, it's not an option. It's a command. It's a command. Some of you have been through hard relationships. Some of you have had real deep hurts. And some of you can't repair it because the person who's hurt you isn't even alive or isn't around any longer. What do you do? How do we do this? Who do we need to forgive? Well, sometimes, sometimes we need to forgive others, and, and, and that can be the living people who have offended us, or it can be the dead. In either case, the living sometimes can be physically removed from us, and we have no access to them. How do we forgive them without interaction? Because it's a choice that takes place in our hearts. They don't have to even be alive. What we choose to do with the debt that that is owed to us is our prerogative. 
So sometimes we have to forgive others. Sometimes we have to forgive ourselves. Sometimes the one who's hurt us the most is us. Our own stupid choices, our own stupid decisions, and we, we cause ourselves all kinds of wounds, and we live out of that shame, and we live out of that guilt, and we live continually hurting ourselves again and again because we feel like we have to pay in some way for what we've done. And sometimes it's ourselves that need to be forgiven. Hey, as a side note, quick question. I posed this question to one of my fellow pastors, the great, illustrious theologian, Mitch Connell. Should we ever have to forgive God? Do you think that's right to say that? Sometimes we have to forgive others. We know that, the living and the dead. Sometimes we have to forgive ourselves. Do we ever have to forgive God? Tough question, isn't it? Let me just shore it up for you. No. You don't. You know, when we have eternal perspective, you read through the book of Revelation, every creature in heaven at some point says, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Sometimes... Sometimes God allows a wounding in our lives. And sometimes God is even the one who wounds us. Does that require forgiveness? I I would say no. Why? Because I don't believe God sins in any way against us. I think what we're really wrestling with in that situation is whether or not God is good in the exercise of his power and authority in our lives. That's what we're really wrestling with. We're really wrestling with this idea of like, God, if you could hurt me so deeply, if you could allow this and not intervene and not protect me, how can I still call you good? How can this still be true that you're a good father? We're wrestling with understanding his eternal purposes. We're wrestling with his sovereignty in our lives and his authority to do with us what he sees as good and what pleases him. And so when the cancer comes, when the injustice occurs, when the thing happens that you have no control over and your life seems turned upside down, and you are stuck in this place, and you look at God, and you say, God, how could you do this? God is unchanged by our pleas. He's still good. He's still righteous. He's still true. He's still perfect in all of of his judgments. What we need is eternal perspective to be able to look at it all and go, God, I didn't see what you were doing in my pain and in my suffering but you were working for me, as the Apostle Paul says, an eternal weight of glory. What is that? What is that eternal weight of glory? I I would say it's this. There's something in the scriptures called the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Sometimes the trials that we go through bring us into a place of suffering, and sometimes that suffering comes at the hands of others, and we are forced to forgive when they don't deserve it. And in forgiving, you know what's happening? 
we're experiencing what it's like to be God. We're experiencing his heart of forgiveness towards us. We are stepping into the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ Jesus. We're absorbing the debt in the same way that Jesus absorbed our debt on the cross. We are learning about the nature and the character of our great God and Savior. So what does it actually look like to forgive? It looks like Jesus. Forgiveness is not approving of or diminishing a sin. Forgiveness is not enabling a sin. Forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not ceasing to feel the pain. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It's something that we do over and over and over again. Forgiveness is not neglecting justice. Forgiveness is not trusting. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It doesn't mean everything is made better and we're all good. But here's what it is. It's an act of compassion. It's saying, you're a sinner like I'm a sinner. God's forgiven me this great debt. How can I withhold forgiveness from you? It's an act of release. Forgiveness is leaving the final result, the final judgment, the final act of justice in God's hands. It's refusing to sit on his throne. It's saying, Lord, you alone are the righteous judge. You alone see all the angles. You alone can perform justly the recompense for this sin. And you will either do that through your son on the cross or you will do that when they stand before you in eternity. But you are the righteous judge. I am not. I don't have that authority. It's an act of faith. Forgiveness is being unwilling to sit on Jesus' throne and it's being willing to allow him to be the king. It's saying, I trust you, God. I trust you that if you would allow this person to wound me, that you are still good. It's an act of faith. And it's an act of sharing. Listen, when we forgive, we're experiencing the heart of our Savior. We're learning the great cost of our own forgiveness as we forgive others. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Listen, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is knowing where to file the hurts. Listen, (laughs) I've got a desktop and it's a mess, right? Because I've got about 15 projects all started up at the same time and most of them are unfinished. So when you look at my desktop, there's papers here and books stacked over here and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get back to that. And oh yeah, I've got this project. When I have a little bit more free time, this one takes priority, right? But here's what happens. When I start to accomplish some things, then I take at least parts of those stacks of papers, I put them in a file folder, and I take them over to the filing cabinet, and I put them away. Why? Because it's dealt with. It's done. You see, and when I've done the work of forgiving somebody from the heart, it's not that it doesn't come up again or that I don't remember. It's that I know where to file it. It's not stuck on my desktop anymore. It's put away. And when it comes up again, I go, oh, that's right. I already finished that project. It's done with. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is knowing where to file the hurts we receive. Forgiveness is letting God be the judge. Forgiveness is taking off the backpack 
so that we can travel light. Forgiveness is not planting poison oak in the garden of our souls. Forgiveness is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I'm going to invite Mitch and the crew to come up and lead us in worship. But today is the day for us as God's people, as the chosen of God, to deal with our sin, to deal with the debts. And some of you right now, under the preaching of the word of God and under the influence of the Holy Spirit, are wrestling internally right now. You immediately, as this topic comes up, there's an immediate person that comes to your mind. There's an immediate need in your life. God, by the Holy Spirit, has put his finger on something that needs to be dealt with today. And this is your moment. It's time to take the backpack off. It's time to lay the burden down. You've been carrying that weight long enough. We're going to continue in a mode of worship. The ushers are going to come forward at this time to receive this morning's tithe and offering. But Mitch and Jesse are, are going to be singing a new song for us. And as they do that, I want you to be thinking. I want you to be praying, especially those of you who this morning are wrestling with what I'm talking about, wrestling with forgiveness. You've got some soul searching to do before the Lord and in his presence. And then at some point, Mitch is going to invite you forward and you're going to come and take communion here. And as you do so, it's, it's an opportunity to recognize that the death of Jesus does not only pay for your sin, but it pays for the sins against you. So as we sing this song together and as we meditate upon its words, I want you to think about what it really means to lay your life down and say, Jesus, I will enter into the suffering with you. I will forgive like you have forgiven. I will release the debt as you have released mine. Let's pray. Father, use your word. Use your spirit. Unload the burdens of the people who've come here today. God, send them out the doors free today. For your name's sake and for your glory. May we be ultralight backpackers through life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Song to the world.